With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 29th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, Player.fm, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, and whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Or uh, subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site. Also, please check out my websites, Symbus360.com and privacyguidance.com. And hey, I'm now teaching live online IAPP privacy certification classes. Send me an email if you want to know more about that. As I mentioned on my last show, I'm preparing to give a keynote and workshop in the Philippines in September. And I'm really looking forward to exploring up close some of the volcanoes in the Tagatay area there and also looking at and exploring Corregidor Island. I have on my bucket list visiting all seven continents and I have two left to go, Africa and Antarctica. So, if any of you are from Africa or Southern South America, which looks like it has the closest access to Antarctica and need help with information security or privacy, get in touch. Also, if you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser on this radio show you're listening to now, please get in touch for that as well. My August Privacy Professor Tips message was published on July 30th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, sign up for them. I've always provided them for free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know who is your privacy hero. This can be at your work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. So today my tip of the week relates to a risk that has existed ever since people have been using networked printers and fax machines. You know, those devices are almost always providing openings into the organization's networks, databases, and attached computing and storage devices. Those fax machines, copiers, and printers They're often installed as a plug-and-play 
type of device. And the defaults for almost all those types of machines is to allow open access with no security applied as a default. Case in point, I read a report from Checkpoint Research that was just published this month, August 20 of 18. The researchers were able to gain access to every computer connected to the same network as a Hewlett-Packard all-in-one printer. The researchers sent a fax of malicious code disguised as an image file to the printer, which then stored the file, which then allowed researchers access to the entire network and all the devices attached to them. So think about that. Many, perhaps most, of the offices use some type of all-in-one printers, and most of them have fax machines, uh, functions, on their network. But the technology is often not used, or that faxing capability is used very infrequently. That was the key to the vulnerability that checkpoints researchers were able to exploit. No one was checking incoming faxes, so no one caught that malicious file. So here are my tips for today for just a few of the many actions you should take to make sure you're not leaving a wide open pathway into your network and the attached systems, databases, computing devices, and all those other digital storage vaults. And you don't want to have your unsecured fax machines, printers, and copiers to be able to give that pathway to the cyber crooks. So number one, check to make sure your fax machines, copiers, and printers, make sure they're not configured as open hotspots for anyone within the reach of your Wi-Fi signal. Turn off this accessibility. Or, if you need it for some reason, establish a strong password to connect to it via Wi-Fi. Use a two-factor authentication requirement if possible. Number two, disable the web management interface for your fax machines, copiers, and printers. Don't have that enabled if you don't need to use it. And number three, disable your fax and other capabilities on your all-in-one machines that you do not use. Then in the very rare points in time that you need to use them, enable them for only an amount of time that you're actually using them or require additional authentication to use them. Now, of course, there are many other security controls you should implement. But you know what? If you take these few actions, that's going to close most of the easy ways into your network and devices that could be open right now and for which you aren't even aware. So today on my show, I'm covering international cybercrime and cybersecurity. You know, cyber crime is still increasing. Now, I want to provide just a few recent statistics for you. So the first one, a 2016 Central Bank of Nigeria report on Internet electronic frauds said that banks in that country cost them 2.19 billion Nigerian U.S. or Nigerian funds amount of currency. This is equivalent to around 145.5 million U.S. dollars. So those cyber criminals were able to get a lot of money through those electronic channels that year. Now, the next step 
McAfee and the Center for Strategic International Studies reported that worldwide cybercrime had cost the equivalent of 600 billion US dollars in 2017. Let's go on to 2018. The 2018 Alliance Risk Barometer revealed that cyber incidents and cybercrime now ranks as the most feared cause of business interruption worldwide. And their barometer report indicated that 38% is just one of the many stats in that report. They said that 38% of South African companies view cyber incidents and cyber crime as the biggest threat to their businesses in that country. And one more statistic for you from the Malwarebytes Cybercrime Statistic Report that was for April to June of this year, 2018. They reported that crypto mining of cryptocurrency was now the most popular cybercrime for the quarter. And that was followed closely by ransomware. And then, after that, exploits of systems and software vulnerabilities, such as the use of VPN filter for their malware attacks. VPN filter malware actually uh, infected more than 500,000 routers worldwide. Now, very interestingly, on June 13th, the day before the World Cup kicked off, literally and figuratively, this year, 2018, there was an actual steep increase in international cyber attacks. So it seems like the cyber crooks were hoping that attentions were being placed elsewhere instead of on monitoring networks, systems, and data security. So what's going on with cybercrime throughout the world? What are the trends and who's being targeted and what are the impacts? You know, I mentioned earlier that I'm going to be speaking at the Data Privacy Asia Conference in Manila in September. And today I have the great honor of having as my guest a distinguished speaker who will also be at the Data Privacy Asia Conference on September 19 and 20. If you're curious about that conference, you can see more about it at dataprivacyasia.com. So today my guest is Roland Von Geist an independent cybersecurity expert who's really passionate about protecting what is dear to us and using innovation to do that. Roland is a global speaker on cybersecurity strategies, and he draws upon his many backgrounds. Roland has worked in international law enforcement, in mass media productions, and internet connectivity. In the 1990s, Roland founded the first direct access internet provider in the Netherlands, and his country was the first to connect to the internet outside of the United States, spawning now a vast industry that is still leading today. After obtaining a degree in computer engineering, Roland worked as an award-winning presenter on Dutch national radio while simultaneously studying the field of artificial intelligence. Roland played a key part in implementing the National Interactive Civilians Alert Network, Bujernet. Starting in 2015, Roland facilitated the development of Interpol's Cyber Fusion Center in Singapore. 
Roland has published many articles on hot topics about cybersecurity, and he's done that in English, Dutch, and German. Roland, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Well, my pleasure, and, and thank you very much for, uh, for having me on your show, Rebecca. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. And you know that the topic is cybersecurity and cybercrime. I don't think that's ever going to um, be something that people aren't interested in, in hearing more about. <laughs> so, Especially with the statistics that you just mentioned, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of scary, aren't they? Well, you know, listening to those st- statistics and knowing all of your expertise in this area, what do you see as some of the most significant cyber threats within our current... Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit there, but uh, I think I got the question. Um, so I think you already uh, just gave an excellent example uh, in your introduction about the, uh, you know, the checkpoint investigation into this, uh, this, this fax vulnerability. I mean, who even knew that people still had faxes? But somehow there seems to be still a large number of them out there for legal reasons, for, for example. Um, and if those are now multifunctional machines, you know, we've, we've heard about uh, printers that are connected to very... Uh, critical infrastructure that, you know, if it's a printer, it would be uh, supposed to receive a lot of information and then print that out. Uh, but sometimes printers are found in places where uh, uh, you might not expect them to be, uh, and they are sending out a lot of information. So not sure where that is going, uh, but that is not some that's not, not the kind of behavior that you would expect from such a device. And I think the the, the point that that um, uh, you you actually just made yourself is that there's so much legacy stuff uh, in there that you know if there's like dedicated uh, attackers who know or who can figure out what is the makeup of uh, your your original infrastructure that maybe you built your current more modern infrastructure upon um, that that might be a vulnerability that an organization might not even be aware of. Um, but to, to counter that at the same time, I, I do think that uh, the main threat at the moment still is uh, basically generalized attacks that just happen to hit in unsuspected or uh, rather unexpected places um, uh, with with possible cascade effects of that. So, for example, what we saw last year, of course, was the, uh, the huge WannaCry outbreak worldwide. Which had, you know, detrimental effects on uh, individuals, on on small and medium businesses, but also, for example, on the uh, the, the main uh, harbor in the Netherlands, which is the the international harbor of Rotterdam, which uh, suffered a lot of losses uh, because of that financially, because uh, part of the logistics chain became blocked due to just malfunctions that were generated by this ransomware and obviously these ransomware uh, criminals that you know uh, uh, they, they just are shooting are aiming at, at, at no one in uh, at no one specifically at no one uh, particularly uh, and it's just that they just happen to hit there and then through cascade effects, uh, you know, the, the, the logistics chain uh, breaks down and it hurts not just uh, the major businesses, but of course also the, the smaller businesses that, that surround it. So I do think that at the moment we still, the, the, the major danger is still the, let's say, the generalized attacks that might, you know, find uh, vulnerabilities that um, uh, hit harder and have a larger cascade effect uh, than maybe even the attackers might have foreseen while they uh, rolled out this uh, this cyber weapon. 
You know, throwing that digital net out there to see where it can land and what it can Mm. ensnag, it's kind of like going after not just the newest technologies. I know a lot of organizations are focusing on all the new technologies and keeping, uh, trying to secure them. But, you know, as we, you, you, I mentioned earlier, those legacy legacy systems are pathways. And then, of course, like with the ransomware, it's really um, attacking and and, uh, making use of exploiting human failures, right? Human failures or vulnerabilities and lack of knowledge and so on. So it it seems like... uh, they're attacking, they have so much more attack surface now than they ever mm-hmm. had before. <laughs> so, do you see, yeah. Grant? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, you, you were uh, asking a question. Well, I was going to say, so besides the ransomware, uh, yeah. that's so effective, but what do you see as some of the other more prevalent types of hacking activities that seem to be pretty effective? Well, um, I would say that, 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 you know, generally speaking, uh, 95% at least, maybe even more of what's going on is just, you know, criminals trying to make a buck one way or the other. Uh, and from that you see, um, you know, uh, kind of a waterbed effect, if you will. Uh, so I remember like a few years ago in the Netherlands, we had big problems with skimming, you know, where, where uh, uh, debit cards were, were cloned because of the magnetic stripe that, that was uh, attached to it. Um, and actually we, in the Netherlands, we changed all of that to uh, include uh, the EMV chip. So uh, this, this means that the card itself has to be present. It has to interact with the device. So you cannot really clone it anymore. Um, so that kind of stops that type of crime. But then the criminals are going to f- try and find other ways, of course, of, of uh, getting the money that they want. Uh, so ransomware is, is one example. Uh, another one is, uh, and especially if you're, you're looking at it from the perspective of like the, the larger businesses, I would say, um, is the danger of uh, commercial espionage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you're if you're a company and you have some, um, let's say, some proprietary uh, inventions or, uh, or or products or you know, the famous recipe to Coca-Cola, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, might be very interesting to get your to get your hands on that. And if you cannot get your hands on it, it might be very interesting to see if you can hold that information ransom or if you can pretend to the general public that you have gotten your hands on that. And, you know, those are all interesting vectors uh, that might lead criminals to uh, try and get, you know, as far as they can, doing maybe um, reconnaissance work throughout networks, uh, going laterally throughout the network after getting in and then trying to escalate the privileges so they get more and more privileges and get more... um, uh, ownership of the network and in the end might actually be able to uh, perform actions on the network as if they were an administrator and of course that you know is a is a very dangerous thing but you know some some criminal groups are actually quite apt at doing that and also at the same time doing it only to a certain extent where uh, they are very much aware that, you know, we are aware of that they are trying to do this. Um, so they, they need to find ways to stay under the radar. 
Mm-hmm. I think a very nice nice example of this was the uh, what uh, Kaspersky Lab once dubbed the uh, Carbonac uh, criminal group. Um, and what, what they did was basically they found different ways of attacking uh, banks in Russia and, and infiltrating them and getting money out of those banks. Um, but uh, they always stopped at, at the, the point where they collected $10 million US. That, that, that was their cutoff. And oh, the, interesting. There's, there must be a rationale behind it. Is that maybe, you know, um, they consider like, you know, anything under $10 million uh, US a bank can you know, sustain as a blow or they might feel not inclined to report it because the, the, they would consider their reputation to be more important. Uh, or maybe uh, some insurance deals, you know, go up to exactly that level. I'm not sure why that is, but it was a very interesting phenomenon in that whole modus operandi of that group. So, uh um, yeah, <laughs> the fact that you might not uh, see them active on your network might not mean that they also are not there. Right. Well, you know, you bring up a good point about, you know, how they infiltrate and might be there for a while and then, you know, making lateral moves through there. Do you see a lot of um, activities perhaps where they're actually becoming part of the organization. And I ask that because like here in Des Moines, Iowa, up up the interstate from us just a little ways is Iowa State University where uh, in Ames, Iowa, and they do a lot of research there, not only cybersecurity, they have a lot of test beds, but there's also a lot of research for uh, agriculture industry and so on. And, And just in the past year, we, they caught uh, several who had infiltrated, you know, as students, as teaching assistants and so on to get into the program so they could learn more about the details and then go from there in order to um, launch other types of attacks. So it, it seems like it's not only throwing the net out sometimes, but it's also very focused in a long-term tactic to uh, get into where you want to hack and then also spend time so you can get a really big payday perhaps as a result. Well, that that is, um, on on the one hand, it is is a worrying uh, phenomenon, what you're describing. I I would like to add to that, that is something that probably has been going on for, you know, maybe as long as humans have been around. (laughs) Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, always, we're always snooping. And, uh, you know, I, I know for a fact that in the Netherlands, actually, uh, at some point, you know, we were, I think we were uh, part of a research group uh, into nuclear uh, power or something. Um, and actually, uh, some some spies from other countries that, that wanted to get their hands on that knowledge actually just, you know, enrolled in class or became like a, like a, a person working uh, uh, in the, in the lab there. And they just, you know, by that means they, they actually, by those means actually got access to the information and then, you know, took it out and, and exfiltrated it as you would say nowadays uh, and just uh, took it home uh, if you will um, so that, that is something that you know it, it does happen in history and, and we should not be I would say on one hand not, not be too surprised but also not be naive that you know this this danger is, is obviously is obviously there so um, a, a good advice I, I got a few years ago from you know a friend of mine who is more uh, working in the intelligence community if you will will um is that 
it might be best to just kind of run your business as if you might have already been compromised. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to be too too much of a uh, too much uh, too paranoid about it, but if you if you uh, run it like that, then you know for sure that you know you're going to be um, very safe and very uh, careful with with your proper uh, company secrets that that you own. Well, and you know, in the intro, when I was describing some of your background, while well, you talked about um, or what you've accomplished, you, you, I listed some of your accomplishments in the 1990s. So, you know, as you're speaking, I'm talking or I'm thinking about what I did through the 1990s, starting around 1991. I started building the information security and then privacy added to that. Um, for a large multinational company. But just, you know, I'm sure you could relate to this too. Back at that time, there were no privacy laws or regulations. Security was all about international, or not international, intellectual property protection, right? Making sure that the business um, assets were protected, all the digital ones and, and the information ones. So, um I think uh, maybe a good lesson here, too, to, for our listeners is even though we have all these new threats and new technologies, we can never forget about all the long-time existing ones that we still need to make sure we're protecting as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very fair point. Um, and, you know, in, in the end, it is the heart of, an, uh, of a company or, or sometimes of an entire industry, uh, these specific trade secrets that, that you might have. So, uh, and there are systems, I mean, there's rules and regulations, but also proper systems in place for that. Um, so in that respect, it isn't new. I think what is new is that um, back then, you know, in the 90s, at some point, you know, we were becoming aware of the fact that, oh, maybe somebody might be able to copy this and then distribute it very, uh, in a very uh, contrived way. I would say it would be quite complicated or, or cumbersome. And nowadays, of course, yeah, you know we're, we're we're moving towards 5G in the world, and uh, I, I think I, I I heard that that our iPhone of uh, you know in five years time will be able to download um, a movie an entire movie uh, off of Netflix just download it in a few seconds, uh, and wow. obviously this 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 type of speed, well you know if if it's the same type of speed that they can use to exfiltrate your data then you better watch out you better uh, have all your locks uh, proper in place. Exactly, we truly will. Be- become like the the different movies mission impossible where people can get data that that large in a matter of a second or two so um you know we're coming up right now roland on to a break so i'm going to stop right here and we can continue our conversation when we come back but um now it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that i do appreciate so much we're speaking today about international cybersecurity and cybercrime with roland von geist an independent cybersecurity expert and award-winning speaker and writer. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show suggestions, using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my website, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Find 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today. are listening to data security and privacy with the privacy professor if you have a question or comment about the program feel free to send an email to rebecca harold at rebecca harold.com that's rebecca harold at rebecca harold.com now back to data security and privacy with the privacy professor Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We're speaking today with Roland Von Geist, an independent cybersecurity expert and award-winning speaker and writer. And we're talking about international cybersecurity and cybercrime. So right now, we're going to continue our conversation, and I want to turn our attention to critical infrastructures, um, such things as electric grids and gas grids, water grids, also those other types of critical infrastructures such as healthcare networks and voting and election systems and those things that keep government going and so on. So, Roland, what parts of the different countries' critical infrastructures have you found or do you believe that cyber crooks are targeting right now? (laughs) <laughs> wow, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I would say, um, you or, know, where are the vulnerabilities? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think there's, um, you know, you have your traditional critical infrastructure that's probably been there for, you know, sometimes centuries. To be to be fair, uh, you know, in the Netherlands we have uh, our famous dikes. You must be aware of it. Uh, oh, yeah. And our our polders, you know, we have the windmills not just for fun, but actually they keep our feet dry 
right? So that is part of our critical infrastructure. Um, but obviously, you know, we've, we're not living in the Middle Ages anymore, so we've attached more and more electric devices to that. Um, and actually, we're moving to, for example, for our electric grid uh, to, um, you know, uh, allow everybody to have their own smart meter if you will. Yes. Um, and the, the thing with that is that those smaller devices become by themselves quite easy targets for, uh, I wouldn't even say cyber crooks or criminals, but just regular criminals. Uh, so one, one uh, suggestion, you know, that's taking place uh, here is that, you know, if you were able to hack into somebody else's smart meter, uh, you might kind of reroute their energy or reroute your energy bill to them. And this by itself, you know, you might think, okay, this would give you a small advantage of maybe $100 or something per month. Uh, but maybe if you live next door and you have like an illegal um, weed uh, plantation, which... Uh, Mm-hmm. We do find some of those in the Netherlands. Uh, then suddenly it's, it's a whole different thing. Um, and it could actually impede on, of course, the integrity of the, uh, of the, of the electric infrastructure, which have, has been there for you know, decades and decades and decades, but now uh, could be manipulated over these small things. Um, uh-huh. Another issue um, that you know, uh, we actually learned as a country uh, is part of our, our, our uh, vital infrastructure um, is uh, the whole network of um, electronic certificates that you have as, as a country, as a government. So actually what, what we had happened a few years ago was, um, you know, we had many electronic services, digital services, like our tax office, for example. You can go to your municipality online and, uh, uh, well, we talk about voting later. Um, well, we got to the point where, you know, our government said, okay, uh, we need people to be able to verify that, you know, they're dealing with the Dutch government and that the connection is secure. So they closed the deal with a, a company that was going to provide these certificates. And then that company, after a few years of, of running these services for, for the Netherlands and allowing all the citizens to happily, you know, log in and, and fill out their tax forms, um, this company got compromised in a very serious way to the point where it actually became the Netherlands' uh, first and so far only official ICT crisis where, you know, our ministers were uh, having meetings like in the middle of the night and, and our then minister of security was like well in his 60s uh, and he had to, you know, be, be uh, taught what is a certificate authority and why do we need it even. Um, uh-huh. so, and this suddenly be- became like a whole big thing. Um, uh-huh. And uh, out of that, one thing that arose out of that, for example, is uh, what we call the ICT response board. And this is uh, something basically that the Dutch government can call upon uh, day or night, whenever there's like something that, that, that feels like an IT crisis, that it's like a, you know, a calling circle. They can just phone some experts. I think I'm on the list somewhere there also. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if they really need urgent advice, what should we do with this? And never before had we even considered that this could be part of, you know, our vital infrastructure because, you know, it's just some, some applications online, but it, it almost part of parts of the, the essential uh, government's services to the, uh, to the general public basically ceased to function due to this deliberate attempt to compromise uh, the certificate uh, authority. So that wow. was a thing. 
So when you're saying the certificates were compromised, then what does that mean? Does that mean that the uh, the consumers were trying to make payments and they couldn't because of the certificates? And then did they actually lose power as a result? Uh, well, what actually happened was that the, the certificate authority was compromised. So somebody kind of... Uh, tried to, um, uh, let's say, hack into their systems or actually succeeded mm-hmm. in that. Uh, and what that led to was uh, the, uh, the creation of doubt as to whether all the certificates could be trusted after that because that's, that's the oh. basic premise of the whole uh, quite complicated uh, <laughs> certificate system. Um, and, and because of that, uh, some of the major tech companies actually decided, okay, we might have to uh, revoke these certificates, not accept them anymore as being valid because somebody might have tampered with them. So maybe somebody would be using the certificate to uh, assume that they were logging into, for example, the Dutch tax office. Uh, and then this happened a number of years ago, though. I mean, it's everything is safe now. But back then, uh, you, you might have been able to to uh, construe a, a man-in-the-middle attack from that. Um, and uh, then those tech companies, or, or one specifically, actually, you know, they, they had to be convinced by the Dutch government to, you know, give it some time so we can create another uh, solution. And in the end, another company was found that was, you know, impeccable when it comes to its uh, security, and they were able to take over this uh, this role. Um, and it's just something that you that you hardly ever think about. And it's it's like before, you know, uh, earlier uh, in the hour, uh, we discussed about these faxes. Who, who mm-hmm. is thinking about fax machines anymore? And this is the same thing. You know, it's just a small part of the uh, of the whole infrastructure that people think, okay, this um, uh, you know, you see the little uh, green lock, and you assume, okay, everything is probably fine because the green lock says so. But there's a whole world behind that of you know mm-hmm. certificate uh, technology that can be compromised. Yes. Well, and I think a lot of our listeners might not even realize what. The purpose of those certificates are for, but I think your example of what happened helps them to see that that certificate is basically saying, yes, I'm verifying that I am who I say I am, and if somebody else gets a hold of that, that can uh, mess things up. Indeed, it could be quite quite interesting, uh, if you will. and I'm just yeah, I'm just trying to think of some other uh, examples here. Um, uh, a few years ago, you know, our our largest uh, telco uh, became victim to a hack. Uh, back oh. then, they had a had a very different they had a very different uh, structure to their security. So nowadays, they're you know they're very secure company, I would say, and it's it's really in their business model to you know provide the most secure services. Uh, back then, of course, they also promised to, but they didn't have like. A 24-7 active search, if you will. Um, and what happened was that basically, um, well, the, the bottom line is that a kid, nobody knew at the time, but a kid, um, you know, just tried to use some uh, kind of open source, publicly available tools to find vulnerabilities, uh, and found a, a vulnerability in this in this telco in their systems. Um, and it's actually a vulnerability that had been patched. 
but the patch cycle wasn't completed successfully. But it was like, I don't know, it happened over summer and, and nobody paid attention to that. Um, and this kid, he just liked to uh, gain access to machines. So this this whole thing came together when they found that like between two and 300 of their core machines uh, were all compromised, were all owned by an unknown actor uh, who actually got access to, to uh, well, it theoretically got access to, for example, the Dutch uh, phone network and might have actually been able to um, to tamper with our emergency uh, phone network. Uh, so that was, that was quite a scary thing. And in the end, it turned out to be, you know, just a kid, uh, just, I won't say having, having fun, but, you know, just, just, delving for keys because that was his you know his geeky uh, his geeky passion so you cannot always assume uh, from what who is the actor the actor can be you know a very big criminal group it can be uh, just one boy uh, but the effect uh, can be actually the same and it can all be very uh, quite scary to the people involved of course Yes, and you know, when you um, describe that situation, as you point out, uh, you never know who can be there, but like in that case, I mean, he was just curious. He was trying to figure out how the system worked, and did he actually do any damage or do any harm then as a result of his curiosity? Um, I, I think I'm, I'm <laughs> or maybe trying to re- remember all the details of the case. I think he did a little bit of uh, cheeky stuff in the, you know, uh, uh. Uh, using some file servers or something. Uh, but, you know, he, he did not uh, close down the phone networks or something. But he could have. And yes. the fact that, you know, an actor was able to do that, he was kind of poning uh, the the largest telco of the Netherlands, which was you know, it's a serious company, <laughs> with yeah. you know there are no amateurs. Uh, that that by itself is quite you know quite an impressive um, uh, feat, uh, and and especially if you then kind of delve into that, because then everybody says okay you should hire this guy because he must be amazing, and then it turns out that you know. Uh, actually, he's just you know he's a kid. He's playing, and he's he found some online uh, ways of of finding these vulnerabilities and and exploiting them. Um, I have to say that. Back then, we were less clear in the Netherlands about what you could do if you were a kid and you found vulnerabilities. Uh, nowadays, we have quite a clear policy that is actually being exported from the Netherlands to many other countries in, in Europe, uh, which is called uh, Coordinated Vulnerability Disclosure. Um, and it, it's, it, it basically says that, you know, um, it's, it, it's still up to companies and organizations, uh, but if you uh, want to be a part of this, uh, then you can, well, at least accept if somebody finds a vulnerability and maybe reward them in name or give them a t-shirt or whatever. Um, and the Dutch government was actually one of the participants of this program itself, of course, kind of leading by example. And for a number of years, we, we got many people in a, from outside of the Netherlands that would you know, find vulnerabilities in Dutch government websites and then report them to the Dutch government. And as a result, they were not prosecuted, but they got a t-shirt saying, I hacked the Dutch government and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and many of those actually went to, uh, for example, countries like India, 
where they have many skilled people who uh, kind of see this as a badge of honor and can use that, you know, kind of to, to buff up their CV, if you will, uh, and to, to, to showcase, you know, I hacked the, the Dutch government. So maybe you want to hire me over that other guy that did not hack the Dutch government. So, yeah. So it was like one of uh, the early bug bounty programs, in a sense. Yeah, you, 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 could, you could say that. Um, so basically, I have to stress that, you know, that nobody is... Um, Encouraging people to hack into systems, uh, but if you find a vulnerability uh, for a company or organization that participates in this program or kind of underwrites it, um, and you uh, don't go too far, so that's a very important bit. So you can't just you know go uh, uh, kind of snooping around in people's medical history or something. Uh, but you know, you, you, if you can prove that, for example, you can list a directory and then you report this to this company, then the idea is that together you will. Um, for example, write a publication on it and then go public about it together. And I think uh, slowly as a society, we're moving to a point where uh, so many companies and organizations have this kind of, you know, they, they, they accept this as you know a viable way of doing this, uh, that at some point, maybe some, some companies that are not underwriting it, if they were to then make make uh, a case of it when it's really just a small uh, vulnerability check that, that, that some kid is doing. Uh, the judge might actually say, you know, everybody else is kind of considering this to be uh, common practice. Uh, so maybe, you know, uh, ha- have a different policy as a company. So I think that's slowly where we're, we're moving uh, towards, you know, kind of embracing this power that these hackers have because a lot of them, you know, really want to just, either explore or actually just help and make the, make the world and uh, uh, those companies and the infrastructure safer. So yes. that, that is a good thing, of course. Yes, definitely. You know, as you were describing that, I immediately thought of the Morris Worm from 1988. You know how that was one of the very early accidental um, right. problems. I mean, the, if, can you imagine it, the Internet as it was then in its infancy was so small and it you know, brought it to a standstill accidentally? Can you imagine if somebody was able to... Um, discover a vulnerability that would do that today that would just be amazing so i think i think what you're talking about is great and this is what um i believe you're talking about at the data privacy asia conference too kind of getting into that collaboration between private industry and uh working with the government and maybe law enforcement am i correct in in thinking this kind of is getting into that area or is your talk going to be on something slightly different? No, no, that's actually, uh, that's part of it, yeah. Um, So, uh, you know, I have a a talk which is uh, basically about how can we improve this collaboration between law enforcement uh, globally uh, and working together with private industry. Um, And of course, you know, there's there's several companies that have a lot of information that they they are sharing with law enforcement in, you know, the, the, all the, and complying to all the privacy uh, regimes that uh, um, that are applicable to that, um, and at the same time, there's a lot of room for improvement. I would say because um, you know there's a, a lot of companies that 
uh, probably are a bit hesitant to talk to law enforcement, probably for reputational damage, for example. So I want to explore with the audience um, in that session as well, uh, you know, what are models that, that you know, might uh, prove more acceptable to private industry. And uh, some examples we, we have, and I, I don't want to, you know, uh, base everything on my Dutch experience because you know I've been in Singapore with with Interpol for a number of years as well. Um, but what we what we've seen in the Netherlands, for example, is that you know individual uh, financial institutions, for example, find it quite hard and difficult to uh, report on a data breach if they have been if they have been uh, hacked to to you know they have to report it to certain authorities, but. Obviously, law enforcement also would like to have that information so they can start an investigation. But then in the end, maybe uh, such a bank or something would say, you know, uh, this might go to court. And then people might say, oh, this bank is, is a, you know, it's a weak bank. It has a vulnerability. I, I, don't, I don't feel safe with that bank. Even though, of course, we see that actors are not really targeting individual banks. They're just going, you know, uh, spraying their, their bullets everywhere. Mm-hmm. So what, what the banks in the Netherlands do is they actually they, they sit together on a daily basis and they kind of look at, at attacks that they see and they try to identify the ones that are shared uh, between them, you know, where, where it's like more than one bank is being hit. And then it's quite obvious that, you know, if they were to go to the police and file a police report um, and ask the police to, you know, investigate and pursue and it might be a court case coming out of that, then nobody will say, oh, look at, you know, this individual bank they will look at the actor, they will say, okay, this criminal has been a very bad guy uh, <laughs> and good for those banks that went to the police and good for law enforcement that they that they followed up on that. So that's one of the models that, I, that I'm that i going to discuss. Um, the other bit uh, is, is more about um, critical infrastructure and exercises that, that you can do. So that, that will be on the second day, which is more of an interactive day. Uh, and I've been asked to uh, kind of uh, help to uh, demonstrate how you can set up this kind of um, crisis exercise that incorporates uh, many governments, but specifically uh, companies in, in, in different sizes and how can you uh, prepare for those and what, what can the learning points from that be? So that's uh, that will be part of my contribution to the Data Privacy Asia. Oh, that sounds very interesting. I sure hope that your workshop on the second day is at a different time than mine because I want to <laughs> I want to attend that so I can hear. And you know, as you're, you're describing, right. you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as you're describing that here in the U.S., I'm one of the things that is kind of similar to that, and maybe. It's, Are you still here? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, please. Uh, can you please rephrase that sentence? Because, uh, oh, yes. So uh, here in the U.S., we have a program called InfraGuard, and it's uh, uh, sponsored by the FBI, but it works with different businesses and organizations to identify different types of not only cybersecurity threats, but physical threats and so on to our critical mm-hmm. infrastructure um, portions that go throughout the U.S. So uh, I actually was a co-founder of our InfraGuard chapter here in Des Moines in 2000. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of been evolving, but it sounds like it might be similar to that. But um, I think it's very uh, important to have that collaboration because like you said, you know, it's important to make sure that those types of incidents don't become effective in one place and then nobody hears about it. And so all the other entities will not know how to protect themselves from the same type 
of um, cyber incident or cyber crime uh, type of, of strategy that's going on. Um, that, that's exactly right, yeah. Uh, so for law enforcement, uh, you know, there are several mechanisms in place that will help them to not just alert other law enforcement about uh, a new modus operandi, but also ask them with that same message uh, called the Interpol Purple Notice, for example. Um, uh, it, will, it will be an alert, but also a request to ask other law enforcement, have you seen this? Mm-hmm. Then please notify so we can maybe work together and, and find this criminal group that is doing this. So I think that's, that is indeed a very important uh, uh, takeaway for this. So then what are one to two actions that you recommend to businesses to take so, or, or organizations, they might not be businesses, they might be organizations mm. like in government, so on, but what, what are one to two actions that, that you think they need to take or that you would advise or recommend to protect against types of um, international cyber attacks that are going on? Right. Well, I, I think you know. There's, of course, each business owner or CEO should should in the end decide for themselves what is their what is their best strategy. But um, I, I think one point that is often of, uh, overlooked uh, by organizations from different sizes is uh, when something like this happens. How do you recover? Mm-hmm. So do you have a recovery plan in place? Uh, how soon can you recover? Uh, what kind of losses or damages will you accept? Um, and especially we see this with uh, small and medium enterprises, of course. Those tend to be the, the largest victims of what well, we just discussed ransomware, for example, uh, before. Uh, because for them, it's often too costly to have like a, a very strong safeguard against these kind of uh, threats. Um, and at the same time, they might not you know, have full backups all the time externally. So uh, sometimes for small and medium enterprises, it might be just, you know, one attack might be the end of their business. And mm-hmm. for most larger organizations and businesses, they, they're probably more resilient, but still think about how to recover. Um, and the other one, uh, especially for all those uh, CEOs, CIOs, CFOs, etc., cetera, uh, that are listening, uh, this is a C-level issue. <laughs> uh, so you need to take this into the boardroom. Be, be aware about that. Don't put it in some IT uh, department somewhere we're downstairs and and you know only blame them when things go wrong. Uh, it is your responsibility, and it is also uh, a, a matter of you have to lead by example. So there's many cases of you know everybody having to comply with these very strict 15-letter password uh, rules from the IT department, except. Mr. or Miss uh, CEO, uh, mm-hmm. who, who then becomes, you know, the, the main vulnerability for any spear phishing. Uh, often because, I don't want to, you know, generalize, but they, they, not all of them are, you know, too tech savvy. Uh, so a, a mistake is easy uh, to be made. Um, and even if they think they, you know, might not become a victim, then a criminal might actually use their account to, you know, implore other parts of the company to send out money quickly somewhere else or something, and they're using their authority. Uh, so they really have to be the ones who are setting the standards and who are communicating to their whole organization, you know, we're going to do this properly, otherwise we might end up with having no organization at all. Yes. Yeah, I, I love those two points. Uh, 
executive responsibility and accountability uh, right from the top. They got to strongly voice their support. Otherwise, you know, they set the example for the rest of the company, right? So if they don't think it's important or their employees don't perceive it as uh, being important to their leaders, then why should they care? So um, definitely that. But then I love about being ready to respond because oftentimes, especially, you know, we've been talking about ransomware. I see so many companies that aren't ready to respond to ransomware because they haven't taken the preventive steps like frequent backups and so on. So they panic right. and they pay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and we don't want that. I mean, also from, you know, the, the, the global law enforcement perspective, uh, as long as these people get paid, they, you know, it, it stays profitable for them to do this. Uh, so don't pay. Uh, do go to law enforcement and just be ready for it. Ha- have your backups in place. And, yes. And disconnect them after you make the backup. That's also an important one. Yes. Oh, very, very good. And I don't know. Uh, we're right at the end of our hour here. It went by so quickly. I'm looking Already? so. Yes, I'm looking forward to speaking with you again uh, in just a few weeks. So Let's thanks do that. again. Yes, definitely. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. So today we've been chatting with Roland von Geist about international cybersecurity threats and also protecting critical infrastructures. I'm Rebecca Harold. You're the privacy professor. I'm your host for the show. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled time, you can definitely listen to the recordings and you can find them on the voiceamerica.com business channel website and all of your favorite um, news and podcast outlets. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities. And if you encounter anything else involving your personal information, try to find out how it's secured or potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are really doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.